Howdy, folks. This is Jaren Zhang. Um, this is episode five of Unguarded Conversations, where we're speaking to Kevin Ashworth um, from Northwest Anxiety Institute. He's the clinical director and senior cl- clinician there, and he has a knack for explaining complicated concepts um, about anxiety, PTSD, and uh, OCD. So today we're going to speak to him a little bit about fear, anxiety, um, how to challenge those things, as well as like kind of getting a new perspective in terms of how to like defeat them, really. So with no further ado, let's get it. Hello. Hello, Kevin. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you. How are you? I'm not too bad. I'm drinking a smoothie right now, and uh, we, we're going to get in it and talk a little bit about kind of who you are, I guess, and what is anxiety, you know? Cause, yeah, uh, cool. Who, who are you, by the way? So who am I? Gosh. Um, so my name's Kevin. Um, I'm, a, I'm a quite a few things. I'm, I'm a husband of a long time of my high school sweetheart. So we've been together 20 years now, and I'm 37. So um, I'm a dad. Um, and then what I do for my work is – I'm a therapist that specializes in the treatment of anxiety disorders. Um, I own a clinic in Portland, Oregon, uh, that, that specializes in the treatment of anxiety disorders using cognitive behavioral therapy, um, and specifically using exposure response prevention. Uh, I'm also an adjunct professor at a uh, university of Portland. Um, and I like to write and talk about this stuff a lot. Cool. Um, yeah. What made you, that was a, that was a good answer, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. It's, you know, I often ask people to think about that too, right? Like there's what we do for a living and then there's who we are. And obviously there's so much overlap, but uh, sometimes it's hard to hang your hat on, um, you know, sometimes our own conflict is trying to find our identity. And the reality is there's never an answer, one answer anyway. Absolutely. And yeah. it's like a spectrum, like it, it could change, not hopefully not daily, but it could change like by month, you know, sometimes you're maybe more of a father or sometimes you're maybe more of a anxiety doctor, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes, so. you know, I'm just, you know, riding Showing. my motorcycle <laughs> and doing neither of those. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I like that. Um, so Kev, why did you become, can I call you Kev? You can call me Kev. <laughs> Why did you decide to become a therapist? Yeah, that's a, I mean, you know, the short answer is um, I never really figured out what I wanted to do in college. Um, I, I did find that I, I seemed, I, you know, I struggled in high school and I did find that I went, I went to community college and took a psych class and it really just made sense to me. This idea of just, I was curious about people and, always felt like, you know, the one thing I was good at was talking um, and never really feel, you know, often people say, well, I'm really good at English or I'm good at math. And I just never felt like I fell into one of those camps. So once I took some psych classes, I just kind of engaged in it head on um, and did everything I could to kind of, you know, be a TA and a research assistant and, and finished with my bachelor's degree and then worked in the field. And uh, I worked at, you know, a residential facility for adjudicated boys um, and that what was are, just, what, so, what are adjudicated boys? Yeah. Adjudicated boys are boys that are in the system for breaking the law. Um, and of, of course you, it's probably hard to be in the system and break the law without psychological and mental health needs when you're, you know, from nine years old to 17 years old, most of them histories of sexual abuse and, and uh, violence in their life and complex mental health issues. And I, grew up without being aware that those things existed in people. Um, And that was really eye opening to me. And so I knew I wanted to go to graduate school to be able to help them a little bit more. Um, So I went to graduate school to get my master's degree in counseling, which is what I practice with. And there I met a professor that was a specialist in anxiety and uh, the treatment that he did is the treatment that I do now. And that really spoke to me from a very practical standpoint of, of how to help people in a very practical way. And then I, uh, did that for two years and I studied for four more years, uh, in the pursuit of my, uh, doctoral degree. 
and got to the very end of that. And then life kind of fell apart for me for a while. And I did not end up uh, finishing that degree for various reasons. Um, my dad got cancer and was given a terminal diagnosis. And then my professor passed away, who was my mentor. Um, he actually took his own life at the time. And that kind of put everything on hold for me. And uh, I really wanted to walk away from the field, but um, I just opened Northwest Anxiety Institute and with my business partner, who's a pretty awesome, amazing person. And we, we started growing this practice that was about eight years ago. And now we have two locations and, and we're very, very busy. So we have about 12, 15 staff and, um, and here we are today. Got you. Um, wow. So let's rewind back really quick. You were talking about like, um, so you went to get your master's to further your practice and what, what is your kind of like approach and I guess like philosophy? Yeah. Um, so there's lots of, you know, what we call theoretical orientations when you look at psychology and, and it depends what you're looking at. So you can just look at human psychology. You can look at psychopathology, which is, you know, when there's a problem, like there's a symptom. And I work from the lens of cognitive behavioral therapy, which essentially says we all think stuff, but we just don't have that much control over our thoughts. And we feel a whole bunch of stuff and we have really no control over our feelings directly but we can control our behavior. And because these three all influence one another, we can really make serious change in people's thinking patterns and their emotions by directly controlling behavior. And so um, it becomes very simple and um, a very kind of obvious way to help people move themselves through psychological distress, specifically related to anxiety is what I specialize in. Um, it's also what's considered the gold standard or the evidence-based treatment from a scientific point of view. Um, this is what science says and what research has supported to be the most effective treatment for anxiety disorders. Unfortunately, it's not the most common treatment. It's not what most people do when they go to therapy, unfortunately. Really? Okay. Yeah. So cognitive behavioral therapy. First, I have like hella questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so cognitive behavioral therapy to the best of my understanding, I've been going for like a year or so, right? It seems that to the best of my understanding, it's like basically pattern disruption as well as like, because you were talking about how there's three elements to it, right? And we yep. can't control the first two. Um, we can't control our behavior. Uh, we can't control our patterns or like how we are brought up, but we can control like the behavior in, in, in the moment. Like when, let's say if I start getting pissed off or, like I start getting anxious in a certain situation, it's kind of like rewiring my brain in the moment rather than Correct. looking into why I'm like that in the first place. Yeah. I mean, so insight is helpful. Um, you know, except once you practice therapy, you realize lots of people are super insightful. Um, it just, that doesn't get you anywhere. Right. So you can know, uh, and understand why we behave the way we behave. And we all know that, you know, if we don't exercise regularly and we eat high calorie foods, we don't tell us with great insight that that's going to make us gain weight. Yet, why do we all engage in that behavior despite saying we don't want to out loud, right? So insight's not the key there. Something else has to be. And so in CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy, we can say, you keep living through this guilt and this distress, you know, this, these, um, this psychological yuckiness because you're not happy with how you look. So why, so how do we, and you keep eating in a way that you're not happy with. So you already have the insight that's not working. How do I help you change these behaviors? We're talking about behaviors here so that your emotions and your thoughts can catch up. And so that's the really, really hard work is how do we help people change behavior? That's what really, that's what CBT is. Um, because just challenging, you know, irrational thoughts just doesn't get us very far. Got you. Um, so I remember last time you were kind of talking about like, um, I think we had a metaphor that we had a line, right? Like, like building, building these patterns and behaviors and like, and and creating like systems that work for you to fight against 
let's say anxiety in particular, it's kind of like building an igloo, right? You yeah. got to do it block by block. Right. I think it's like, it's like overwhelming when you tell people, oh, you got to do all of this to change your life. But what's like, a, how do we make it easier? Well, I, I think, unfortunately, Jared, the answer is you, never, <laughs> you can't, right? So to use that same analogy, which I really, really like, um, and will probably steal from my patients, thanks, um, and not give you credit. Um, <laughs> to, to use that analogy, right, what happens is if you don't build the igloo block by block, you end up not having one. So what you have to do every time you're cold and you need shelter is you quickly make something that's not going to last. You dig a hole and you get inside it. And you make it through, like you get through the night, let's say, but the next day you just keep moving and then you dig a temporary hole and you keep moving yet you blink and time has gone by. And for the rest of the world, the person that endured block by block had to endure all the distress, but now they get years and years of sitting in a structure that is stable. Yeah. And, and there's nothing easy about it. Right. But that's the same for anything in this world. Unfortunately, for whatever reason, when it comes to our emotional well-being, we have this belief as people that we shouldn't have to feel bad and that there should be some quick solution. And there's not. Yeah, I feel that. What's, uh, I guess, like, a better question would be not what's a quick solution. I'm saying, like, how do we break it down to, like, how do we build that stable foundation? How about that? Yes, absolutely. So... If you come at it from a lens, uh, and not everybody does, that behavior is king, right? Because you can control your behavior. There's a lot of, there's a lot of um, certainty in the ability to control it. And so we have to ask ourselves, you know, what are the barriers for me living a life that I want to live? And then when I either anticipate my anxiety or I feel anxious, what does the anxiety make me do? So there's a cost there. And usually what I have clients do is I have them first start by saying, write a list of everything you do because of your anxiety. And what we call those are safety behaviors. And so that might be everything I do while I ask for excessive reassurance. I check my phone often. I reread emails. Um, I call people I love to make sure they're okay. I double check my door locks. I never drive at night. So there's all these things you do because of your anxiety. Now, what do you not do because of it? Well, you know, I don't go Sit out there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't relax. I don't go to places where I think that I might be triggered. I don't go to places where there's no exits. I don't ever let someone else drive. I avoid, I avoid, I avoid. And so quite quickly people realize, wow, there's a huge cost to living this way. And living this way is analogous to jumping into the temporary shelter only to come out and have to keep trudging along. And so because the, the goal or, the only other option is you start saying, what are, how do I create these building blocks? Well, I have to systematically reduce all of these things that I do to feed my anxiety. And you can't do that at once, of course, right? And so we have to be reasonable with ourselves. And most of us are reasonable. That's how these, th these behaviors existed. We don't want to feel bad, and we come up with ways to help mitigate distress temporarily. That's reasonable. It's just when it stops working that we're plan. So... How do you do that block by block? And it's about being strategic and having a plan, committing time to it every single day, making it a priority. Got you. And kind of like, like slowly, I remember looking on your Instagram. The first time I looked on your Instagram, you talked a little bit about like uh, an anxiety slash fear diet, right? Which is, yeah. to, to my understanding, kind of like letting yourself sit in what makes you uncomfortable. Right. Yeah. Well, anxiety is the perception of threat, not actual danger. So when we ask people to expose themselves to their distress, what we're asking them to do is expose them to the feeling of distress. We never ask people to do anything that's actually dangerous. But anxiety is a future-oriented fear that there's not actually even a problem yet. It's just the potential of a problem, which is why we can't solve it in the moment. And that's why the anticipation of yep. being in a fearful situation. Right. Which, so the only way that you can get help for that in the moment is reassurance because that you're not in the situation yet. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and so we just churn through that process of re like, Hey, um, I'm about to do a podcast on Friday. Um, I'm really worried that I'm going to really, you know, screw it up. Oh, 
well, have you screwed it up yet? No. Okay. Well, do you ever like stutter when you talk or, you know, well, well, maybe I think I did once. Oh, is that okay? You know, and so all anyone can do for me up until this moment is just give me reassurance. I think you'll be okay. And all that does is fuel, shoot, there's a reason to be doubtful. I should just keep worrying about this. Yeah, I got you. So, hmm, that's kind of tough. Because when you break it down like that, it makes me feel kind of like dumb for being anxious sometimes. You know, I'll be like, you're right. Like one of the best ways, I guess, to like be anxiety for, I think like myself and then some people I've like spoke to it's kind of understanding like what you can and cannot control. Yeah. 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 And I would, I would encourage you to, to think of, you know, the thought of, you know, um, I feel kind of dumb for being anxious is I would, you know, you can, you can challenge that or change that to, I feel kind of human for being anxious. Right. Because I live and breathe and I have to always you know, I, I try to make most of my decisions based on my preference, not my fear, right? And I, I say that meaning anxiety wants me to do a whole bunch of stuff to get rid of my anxiety. And sometimes I totally feed it, totally feed it. I just don't have the capacity to challenge it today or, or to confront it. And I totally give in and just get reassurance and pull my head over, you know, pull the covers over my head. So that's just a byproduct of being human. You can't be a warrior every single day. Um, and so, and there's a reasonable, as long as you care about anything in this life, relationships, careers, uh, you know, values, you're going to be anxious about something. So the goal is not the absence of anxiety. It's a relationship with it. That's reasonable. Gotcha. And kind of like understanding that, understanding that some days I maybe, do watch six episodes of Avatar The Last Airbender on Netflix. Right. Some, day, some days I am going to let myself kind of just like sit in it and like be anxious about something, but like also create patterns and behaviors and routines that, that kind of like I know will create a strong fortress against that on days where I can maybe anticipate an anxious situation. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the other thing is, right, there is often if you are planful, like if you're, I don't even know if that's a word, planning your week that's out. a word now. Yeah. If you're your week out and you say, you know what, I can't wait this Sunday, six hours of this show, right? Now you're not making decisions based on anxiety. That's just part of your self-care, right? That's awesome, yeah. right? And so, and that's the same. If I plan on, you know, scrolling TikTok for a half an hour when I finish work, I'm not using that as a way to avoid my psychological distress. I'm using that as a form of entertainment. That's a fundamental difference versus if I just finish work, feel overwhelmed, and notice that I'm just scrolling my phone. I'm doing the same behavior, but the intention behind it is is really, really important around whether I feel like I'm living a life based on being bullied by my anxiety or I'm engaging in behaviors that feel really good to me. And if you're someone that you know you need some time by yourself, schedule that in. But if you never prioritize it and you don't plan it, then what happens is when you feel anxious, you retreat, and then you have all these negative thoughts about I should have, I should have been able to hang out there. I shouldn't have been as anxious. I should have, you know, and that's not helpful. Like feeling like feeling guilty about the situation rather than like, Oh, like I deserve this. Yeah. I mean, most people, you know, you get hit twice, right? You have, you have to tolerate all the anxious thoughts and then you have to tolerate all these other thoughts of telling you you're a piece of shit just for thinking the anxious thoughts. Yeah. Uh, You know, so you're double, you're anxious squared. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's that's a great name of a podcast, actually. Anxious Squared. Um, yeah, for sure. Okay, cool. Yeah, that's a really good point you brought up. Because I was literally thinking about that this week, Kevin. Like, when I was like, damn, like, I grinded out Monday, Tuesday, and then Wednesday, I've been, like, on a microdose cycle, right? Um, are we allowed to talk about that, by the way? All this is deletable. You can talk about whatever you want. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I'm just I'm just wondering if, in case you want to repost it. Well, yeah, I'm on like a microdose cycle. So at, at the beginning of my starting this microdose cycle, I was like, oh, like it's going to be make, make me more productive and creative. I'm just going to like, it's going to be like a limitless pill. But then I realized on days where I'm like, uh, where I'm microdosing, I'm like sleepier and more like relaxed. It's like, it's an automatic, like chill day. 
And so, like, on that day, I was feeling extra shitty because I was like, oh, I did some productive stuff for, like, a couple hours. But then once it hit and I was like, I just wanted to go to art galleries or, like, go on a walk or even just sit at home and, like, hang out. Right. And it made me feel extra guilty because I planned to be productive during that time rather than, rather than, like, just hang out. And that's what made it worse. But, like you said, like, if if I could go go about things, like, oh, like, I know that I'm probably going to react or feel like this on Wednesday. Or let's say Wednesday, I know, now that I know when I microdose, I get sleepier, then I'm going to just plan for myself to, like, go to the beach or, like, go on a hike. Exactly. Right. Um, and that's super helpful because uh, I'm definitely someone that plans everything out, and I often feel guilty because I'll be like, damn, I really just need to hang out right now. Like, like, and I often feel guilty because I'll be like, I plan to do something else. Like, I plan to finish up this design tonight at 10. But in reality, even when I planned it, I knew, like, hey, I'm probably not going to want to do that right. at 10 p.m. Right. tonight, you know? Yeah, and it requires, you know, it just requires, like, here's the other thing. If we if we approach things from a place of um, kind of ex- our own experiments and curiosity, then you plan out your whole week, but that has to that has to involve at some point, Sunday night, Monday morning, a reflection of going, cool, planned out my week. How did that go? Actually, I felt shitty the whole week. Huh. Well, I know planning is good. Oh, my expectations, though, like I just even though I planned my week, I did not include in there enough moments for me to care for myself. Right. I kept running out of gas and then I was mad at myself. I ran out of gas. Right. So and and then I would be going, going, like getting back on the road with no gas. Right. And doing bad in both ways. Exactly. And so then we have to tweak it. So you have to say, cool. So if that didn't work, why would I just keep that same schedule for this week and expect something to change emotionally. So now what I might do is, is, you know, I'm not going to hit it hard. I'm going to hit it Monday, Tuesday for six hours a day, but I'm going to make sure I include X, Y, Z. And then Wednesday I'm going to do something differently or, I mean, I'm not, you know, again, it's always about like, I overextend myself all the time. I agree to things, you know, I'll be going on vacation or can't like, you know, this summer I did this all like we're camping, we're leaving at 10 AM and I sit in a meeting at nine because of the week before it seemed like a great idea, but I know that morning I'm trying to get ready for camping. That was not a good idea to schedule the meeting at nine o'clock. Um, yeah. And so it's somehow do I, how do I have the process or the practice to reflect on that so that when someone else asks me and says, Hey, let's do this meeting. I can say, cool, that day I'm totally off limits. Yeah. And that just comes with like, I think, creating boundaries, right? Like growing up, I I didn't know what boundaries were oftentimes, you know, because like I didn't necessarily have the most emotionally healthy family. So like I didn't, I had no idea what the fuck like personal or like emotional boundaries were, you know, where sometimes you just got to be like, like I have nothing like, nothing work-wise to commit to on a Saturday, but I also just can't hang out with you on this day. Right. right. You know what yes. I mean? This so. is my day. Well, here's an interesting thing. And, and as um, uh, a friend of mine just kind of directed me to a book called Indistractable. I can't remember the author's name, but um, I just finished reading it. And he talks about this and he talks about, you know, in our society, in our life, there's a lot of things we value and we do a lot of things to protect the thing we value. We put, you know, insurance on our phones, we lock up jewelry, we put things, but our time, we just give it away all day long. And it's the, actually the one thing we can never get back. And so, yeah. so that really hit home for me because, you know, a time in like, you know, I allow my watch to, to pull my attention to tell me that I got an Instagram message or I allow my phone to buzz and pull me away from my own process all the time. And then I allow people, as you described, right? Well, I don't have a great excuse not to hang out because I'm not working. <laughs> yeah. Instead of going, whoa, 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 this is super, six hours by myself on a Saturday. That is golden. I'm not giving that up. To, like, you've got to have a really compelling reason for me to give up myself Saturday. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. instead of feeling the emotional pull for someone else. Yeah, 100%. And that was like a really good, uh, I'm going to write that book down actually, and I'll, I'll find it and share the author with you in the article, especially. Cool. Yeah. Um, it's, it's really good. I, in, in my mind, the guy does a really good job of 
talking about all the things I talk about in therapy, but not using any therapy jargon and not using anxiety, just talking about our internal experiences and moving towards things that are unpleasant. So, yeah, hundred percent. I think that we can sit, we can like everybody will have different ways to like, to talk about anxiety, you know? And like some people will be like, Oh, this is literally my anxiety acting up. And then some people will be like, I've just been in a funk. Right. But, but um, going off what you said, just like, I remember, I, I don't know who told me this, like when I was really young, but they told me like, when you think of like budgeting, um, when you start budgeting, like your time as your greatest asset, rather than budgeting, like money in your bank account, right? That's when you really start to like, realign and like, and, and set like priorities for yourself. Yeah. I mean, I think we just have really unrealistic views. Like we want something, right? Like when I started my own business, I wanted to be a successful business owner. I didn't know what that meant, but I thought that what people do is they just work really late and long hours. <laughs> yeah. Right. And yeah. you realize all of a sudden is I don't feel good doing this, but I feel like I'm a fraud if I don't until you realize that, you know, you have to balance uh, your values and live accordance with your values. And, and if you're going to do that, then you have to budget your time for sure. Yeah. There's a book called the go giver and it talks about like reaching astronomical wealth, mm. which is like a balance of like physical, mental relationships, spiritual and financial wealth, Yeah, which to some people may seem impossible, but I think that it just comes from like putting energy towards, and putting your priorities towards those things like kind of evenly, you know? Yeah. And if you think of, if you think of wealth and attach any name before that, you know, financial wealth, personal wealth, whatever it is, if you think of wealth as a goal, uh, it's easy to get frustrated, right? But if you think of all of these categories of wealth as your values, then they're a direction. You're always, you can't ever achieve a, a value. You're just living in that direction, you're heading forward. And I think that's, I haven't read the book, but I would imagine it's something analogous to that because when we are trying to live a life based on our value, the things that provide meaning and actually help us feel good, um, they're not something that can be attained or not attained. We either live according to them or we don't. Yeah. Like, like living according to your North star, basically. Exactly. Like you can't, you can't get the North star. You can't buy that shit at fucking, Right. right but you you can go go that way until you're like oh wow i'm like very happy about this and you can have goals along the way right so you can say i live my life based on another star so my first goal is to reach those mountains and you get there yeah. but but the goal is not the value the value is the north star exactly that's a good point that's sick and this was kind of like uh like us speaking here was kind of like a mountain you know what i mean right. i just wanted to share that real quick kevin yeah like like normally with our lifestyle brand guard, it's like we make we make like streetwear and lifestyle items for young people. But like our goal in our North Star at the beginning of this year was to like kind of like converge the two, like and and join mental wellness and just overall wellness with the fucking culture, you know. And this is like a little. This is like one of the first little mountains we That's hit. That's cool. Like speak like speaking to you and kind of like breaking it down and kind of like even understanding a lot of our values seem to align. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yep. Yeah. Very so. cool. Well, I, I, uh, I appreciate being part of it. Thank you. Of course. I appreciate you as well, Kevin. Um, and there's, there'll be more to come everyone listening. Um, so. Okay, now we're going to realign. Sorry about that. I kind of like blanked out. For yeah, you're good. Um, so now that we know, like there's everyone has different mechanisms that work when dealing with anxiety, right? So what's like one overarching concept you, you kind of would want to share, Kev? I think that you kind of went through like your overall process already. But what's one thing that you're just like, that you want to share with people that don't know anything about anxiety or their relationship with it yet? Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a good question. It's a tough question. Um, I would say that anxiety functions very much like a bully that when you attend to it, 
whether you run away from it by attending or you tell on it by attending to it, it knows it's got your attention. And, Mm -hmm. and the way that we manage bullies is, um, you know, we, we stand up to them, but not in a way where we, um, where we stand up to them with our, with our frustration, our anger, because then they know that they got us. And so, you know, if we know that anxiety perception of threat, if we know it's not actually dangerous, it just feels really, really bad. And I, I hope that's validating and not dismissive to people because I know that somebody listening to this has made serious, has had serious consequences in their life, probably because of their anxiety. And it's not as easy as me just saying, Hey, it's not, just deal with it. That's not what I'm saying. Learn to have a relationship with it that is different than the one that you have. And what you'll find is, is you talk to anyone that lives with anxiety and you just have to ask them all the things that you do to manage it. How is it working? And they'll tell you it's not because they've been living with anxiety for years and years and years and years and years. So the overarching theme is how do you move towards the thing you're afraid of in a nutshell, right? How do you move towards it in order to overcome it? And that's, you can't run away from it. That doesn't work in any world, right? So in a thought, Try not to think about something impossible, right? Um, in a behavior, you, you shrink your physical appearance or your posture from something that's scary and you give it power. So we have to keep these things in mind when it comes to our own psyche and our own like psychological experience that if we train our brain to be afraid of bad content, then bad content comes more frequently. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. I think, uh, I think I read, do you know who the holistic psychologist is on Instagram? I don't, no. Um, she's sick. I'll, I'll send it, yeah, send I'll it back it to up. you later yeah. as well. And she talks a lot about like reframing and realigning your relationship with your psyche period. But like, especially when it comes to anxiety, I wanted to kind of like share a little bit just so that maybe people can kind of like get an idea um, of like how to apply that not saying everybody would apply it like me but like I get what you're saying 100% like I, I kind of realized for myself right like in the morning when I wake up I'm very very I'm usually like the most anxious mm. so I try to like and I'm not as focused and in flow so I try to plan my day out so that when I have to do stuff that I don't really like I do it and, and it's not super like super high level thinking or super high level creating then I try to like plan those with my anxious, like anxious peaks, mm, you know what I yeah. mean? So in the morning, I try to always like do stuff that I don't really like as much, especially because the anxiety gives me personally, it gives me like a certain amount of energy. So I'll like drink tea in the morning and then like answer my emails. Like if I have to, let's say uh, budget or if I have to make certain calls that are like, I know not like this call, but like have sure. a call with, like making a call where I'm like, oh, I really just have to hustle for this. I use my anxiety to like fuel hustle things, yep. you know? Yep. And then in the afternoon after I eat and I know I start to like chill out and like become super calm, I try to use that time to do something more like creative and stuff like that. So is that kind of what you mean? Like kind of like like almost by by realigning your relationship with anxiety and understanding that it will be there, then like also like, changing your patterns and behaviors and routines so that it like almost the anxiety almost helps it. Yeah. I mean, I like, like, I think there's two different concepts here. I think there's stress and there's, there's a lot of things that are very, very stressful and, and cause these physiological symptoms of anxiety. And then there's pathological anxiety. And with pathological anxiety, the treatment hands down is you've got to lean in, you've got to move towards the thing that's scary. But I think, you know, for many of us, as long as things matter, we should feel intense physiological or not intense, but physiological arousal. And so that's how we, that's how we become good at anything. So, you know, a a call that you have to make that you've got to hustle on, I would be really concerned if you didn't feel the knot in your stomach, the tapping of your finger, the leg moving, right? Because your brain is saying this matters. Don't fuck it up. Yeah. Right. And because yeah. it matters, you may have rehearsed. You may have talked to somebody about preparing for it. You may have sent some emails. You have done something because this has value. The, I think part of the problem, Jared, is a lot of people think that to be better is the absence of any of those feelings. 
And that just is impossible as long as you, right? So tonight you've got a date lined up with someone that you think is, you know, very, very attractive and you've been, you know, kind of chasing for a while. That anxiety is going to help you shower and brush your teeth before the date, right? It's going to make sure that you show up on time. So the absence of that anxiety is not what we're looking for either. Now, too much of those physiological state, those arousal states, you know, make you maybe avoid the phone call or, or show up late to the date. And we don't want those either. But I think that's, I think that's really helpful to think about because it's never getting people to the place where they don't experience physiology or, or angst. It's as long as there's a cost and reward for stuff, your body's going to react. And that's really important to remember because I think some people wake up with the expectation is once they're anxious, they feel like they've already screwed up. Like, Oh, great. Here I am now another day gone because of this anxiety and they've got a job to do, or they've got a hard conversation to have or, and I'll just say this cause this is a really long sentence or, um, they're not actually doing any of those really hard things because they're avoiding them and they're confused why they still feel so anxious. It's, but it's because they're not off their plate. They're just pushing them to the side and the responsibility is weighing them down. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that kind of like is why I feel like a lot of people might procrastinate or like avoid stuff, right? Like, cause there's a, there's different types of people d- deal with anxieties. I think like in several different ways and correct me if I'm, if I'm like, like fucking this up, yeah. Kevin, cause you're the doctor and I'm you. just like a 25 year old person that's Googled it like a lot. And so, you know, you know how like people have like different types of attachments, right? Yeah. There's like anxious attachment, avoidant attachment. Um, there's dismissive attachment. And then very rarely are we secure attachment, I believe. And we can always be a combination. So I've kind of realized that people, People, I don't know if this is directly attached to like the type of attachment they have with their parents, but I realize people often like deal with their anxieties with one of those two. They either go head on and like, I'll be like, if this is something I'm anxious about, like, I'm just going to like do it. Like, I'm going to do it to the best of my ability and get it done, whether I like it or not. Some people are like, oh, I'm going to avoid this and like put this towards later. And, and some people are like, I'm just going to kind of like, do this at the bare minimum. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I don't, you know, personally, I don't think of it through an attachment lens. That's another type of theory to think about why people behave. However, okay. however, I would tell you hands down, you know, those are, those are ways that people cope. And the number one way people cope with anxiety is avoidance. And avoidance looks okay. like a lot of things, right? It looks like distraction. It looks like um, you know, which can look like a whole like distraction by substances, alcohol, Netflix, our phone, video games, right? Again, those things are not inherently bad, but if you use them to not to avoid, right, stuff. they become problematic, right? So avoidance, yeah. procrastination is a subtle type of avoidance, right? I think about preparing a presentation and it makes me feel nervous about judgment. Well, then I just put off doing it. Right. And the people that struggle with that pathologically, um, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. So I keep putting off this present, this preparation for presentation the night before. And then the presentation is not that good. And the feedback is it's not that good. And I tell myself, God damn it, I knew it. Right. And yet, if I would have actually not procrastinated, it might have been a better prepared presentation. So. Now, saying that, some people move quickly when they feel anxious, but I would argue, or it's depending on the function of it, right, we can argue that they move quickly to avoid the psychological distress. So they're still avoiding, right? So some people make what they look at really impulsive, but because they can't tolerate uncertainty, some people don't make any decisions. Other people, because they can't tolerate uncertainty, they make decisions very quickly. Rash. That's me. Yeah, Yeah, that's me too. Yeah. (laughs) I want to sit with the unknown. So I just decide and move on, you know? Um, yeah. Wow. That was very insightful. Um, it's kind of funny that you say like, it's like, you know how you were talking about how like different people like will have the same theories, but like just call them different things. Um, I feel like when you were talking about how, like how some people make decisions like either way you're making decisions based on like maybe your anxieties or fears, right? Like sometimes you make quicker decisions or more rash decisions. Sometimes you 
refuse to make a decision and just sit there with it. And it kind of like when you said that kind of made me think of the alchemist and, and how about how like everything kind of like is everything in a way like you like when you're talking about that presentation example in particular, it kind of made me think like that is literally what like um, like the laws of attraction and kind of like realizing your fears and thoughts is right. But by, by thinking, oh, I'm going to screw this up and by procrastinating um, and taking less time and energy to put into that presentation, then it actually does mess up the presentation. Right. Exactly. And and sometimes the things that we engage in to reduce our anxiety become a bigger cost or a bigger consequence than just living with the anxiety in itself. Does that make sense? Um, explain a little bit more. Yeah, like, um, you know, so if, if you and I, like right now as I'm talking to you, maybe you can or you cannot hear this, but I can hear this background noise. Somebody in the building or in the building next door to me is playing music or maybe a car on the street really, really loud, right? So it's, it's yeah. pulling my attention. And as it's pulling my attention, I'm trying to listen to you talk, but I'm also having thoughts that I hope this isn't interrupting the, the recording, right? And so yeah. I'm trying to be present, but this noise is bothering me now. And now that I've attended to it, I can really hear it, right? And so, so I can do a couple of things. I can demonstrate acceptance by just continuing our conversation and, and knowing that wherever that noise is coming from, uh, I probably can't do anything about it. Or I can ask you to hold on while I go and figure this out. By And then, in fact, absolutely the conversation that I'm worried about interrupting, right? By going to try to solve this problem. Um, and that in itself creates the thing that I'm worried about. I'm interrupting it by trying to solve the issue. Um, or I could say, hey, you know, I've got you on my phone and I've got a headset in. Come with me while I go and find this problem. And in my pursuit of finding where this noise is coming from, I'm not attending to you anymore now because I have to, you know, I have to navigate stairs and I have to open doors and I have to confront someone that's playing music. And the whole time you might be thinking, dude, I couldn't even hear the music. <laughs> You're spending yeah. all this energy to go and solve an issue. And now that's the issue, Kevin. The issue now is you're disrupting our conversation because you're going to try and solve a problem. If you would have just let it be, it would have been fine. So that, that's what I mean by like a lot of people will be like, you know, they have rules, right? I can't go out to eat unless I'm not anxious. And it's that rule that creates the quality of life. More change. anxiety. Right, right. Not, not the anxiety. It's, it's the yeah. safety, the coping, the, the thing that you have to now do in order to survive is actually more problem than the anxiety itself. I got you. I think of anxiety as my little brother. Yeah. Like, like, hey, you used to be my big brother, but now I hit a growth spurt. And <laughs> I I'm love taller that. than you. I love that. <laughs> That's actually a technique. Right? I have all of my patients, you know, kind of think of their anxiety as a separate entity, right? Because now I can't be mad at me, right? I can say to myself, hey, my little brother just told me, you know, don't go on that date because, you know, they're going to think you're ugly and stupid. Um, well, you know what, little brother? You don't get to decide that. I'm just letting, you know, I'm just acknowledging that the little brother's conversation. But now I'm going to challenge that. Not, I think I'm stupid and ugly, so now I'm not going to go. You really get to look at anxiety as something else. That's sick. Like yeah, that. it's really good. It's really good. And we do that for most, most people, and especially for working with kids. Because with kids, they get to be creative at what they call their anxiety. You know, some call it, you know, Voldemort or Darth Vader or whatever. You know, like... You know, Voldemort is telling me that, you know, if I go into school, everyone's going to make fun of me. But what have we learned about Voldemort? I ain't listening to him no more. You know what I mean? I'm tired of telling me bad stuff's going to happen because it doesn't actually happen. Um, and it gives them a way to really challenge that internal dialogue. Yeah, I got you. Speaking of anxiety as a kid, like, did you did you have any idea what anxiety was when you were a kid? No idea. I mean, none, 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 none. I mean, I, you know, I grew up in a very working class family. Um you know, I'm an immigrant to the United States. I moved here when I was 11 from England um, with, you know, my family had a handful of suitcases and we really just tried to pursue the American dream. Um, and my mom suffered with anxiety, but I didn't really know what it was. And she didn't either, which I think was the really scary part. Um, 
if I look back, I can reflect on times where I refused to go to school uh, for just feeling afraid. Um, and then um, I don't, and, and then, you know, if I really look back, like there's a lot of behaviors that I engaged in that I would, now I can recognize were, were definitely related to anxiety. Um, you know, I love playing soccer and I was the kid that would be happy to play all the practices and totally fine to sit out for the games <laughs> because, yeah. you know, I just didn't want to be, I didn't, I love being the center of attention, but when there's like competency that is evaluated, that was always my thing. You know, what if I screw up? I don't want to look like an idiot. So I'm, you know, and, and I never understood why other kids would be like, that sucks. We have to do practice. I just want to play the games. I'm like, oh, I wish I could do that. Yeah. You were like, I wish I could just practice. All the yeah. Time. No pressure. Right. Uh, yeah. 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 So, but I don't think I understood it as like a construct or, you know, there wasn't vocabulary. I honestly, um, I don't, I don't think other than a teacher, um, I don't, I didn't know anyone personally in my life that had a college degree. Um, so, um, and I never in my life even met a therapist or a psychologist until I became one. (laughs) Yeah. So it's really kind of interesting. Yeah. 100%. I remember being like a kid. I grew up in Plano, Texas, in China, like at separate times. There's only one of me, obviously. But like growing up, I grew up in the South playing basketball. And then I grew up in China where they don't even have like anxiety. It's like anxiety is not even a fucking thing. It's like if you have anxiety symptoms, they're like, yo, go to the fucking heart doctor, you know? And so I remember as a kid, I would like have feelings of like, just fear i'd be like i don't even know what the fuck i'm scared of but i'm just scared and then once in a while it would just like go away i'd be like wow for this like 30 minutes or 45 minutes i'm fearless yeah you know yeah and that's probably why i went to the hospital so much as a kid but uh like i didn't know what that was anxiety but sure. now looking back on it it's probably for sure anxiety you know yeah and and you know and we don't do a good job of understanding this in our culture right and so most people most people aren't diagnosed with panic disorder, for example, until they've had a couple trips to the ER because they think they're dying. Um, yeah. And, and even when they go to the ER, there's not enough helpful information for them to feel validated. Like, yes, your body is behaving as though you're dying, but you're not. That's much more validating than telling someone they're suffering with anxiety because nobody knows. Many people don't know what that means. Yeah. Right. And, and like you have to put it into a disease to get people to understand that it's literally fucking human. Right. Otherwise people just think, well, I'm not stressed. Why are you telling, like, how is my body behaving as though I'm dying and you're telling me I'm, it's cause I'm nervous. Like that doesn't make any sense. Like it actually makes people pissed off to know that th- this is just human kind of. Well, it's just confusing. <laughs> yeah. It's confusing for people and it feels invalidating. Right. Because we, we, Unfortunately, you know, I don't know this to be true from any research, but uh, there are probably people that are happier with a medical diagnosis than they are with a mental health one, just because there's way more uncertainty. And we love to be told, you know, take this medicine, do this thing. There's a surgery for that. Uh, and you'll be, and you'll be good. You'll be good. <laughs> Myself included, right? Like, it's almost yeah. invalidating when I have a medical symptom and the doctor's like, I'm not sure what it is. And you're like, Oh, like I'm happy it's not cancer, but uh, in some ways I'm also still kind of upset because we don't know what it is, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I feel that. And it's like that honestly opened up so much just now. Like I was going to ask you the question earlier. Why do you think it's so stigmatized? But maybe it's like for some people, they're not like, I don't want to talk about anxiety. It's just like they already have so much shit going on that they're like, damn, now I got to deal with this shit. Yeah, I mean, we talk about mental health like it's a separate issue, though, right? Like, it's um, like everybody's okay talking about, you know, things that mental health impact. So, like, and impact mental health. So, like, we're happy to say, hey, I have a hard time sleeping. I'm going to talk to my doc. You know, we have a hard, have a hard time. I've got physical aches and pains. It just feels like a reflection of our character when we talk about our mental health. Um, and that's just, you know, years of our culture, right? Like, if for many, right? you're comfortable talking about your anxiety, which is awesome. And I applaud you for that. But for many, it takes years to get into a therapist's office because they're, they have to utter out loud, Hey, I feel anxious sometimes, which for them makes them feel like they're admitting to being like weak or damaged or busted or something. 
Yeah. Yeah. Or like fucked up. Yeah. Like people, people just align anxiety with being fucked up. And I think like our goal here is to like align anxiety with being human. Cause if you, if you're not anxious at all, you either don't give a fuck about anything or you're lying. Yeah. You don't know. Yeah, or you, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was like a crude way to say it, but no, I mean like you just, you're not that like, there are some people that just don't, feel their stress physiologically and they may not feel a ton of anxiety and i yeah i i envy those folks sometimes right but there's a cost to that too right maybe they love less right um yeah and so yes i mean i love the idea of helping people understand that you know there's a range of emotions and there's no rule that we should experience one a percentage of the time over the other so um, you will feel sad and down. You will feel afraid when there's no apparent reason. You will feel happy sometimes when there's no apparent reason. You'll feel a whole range of emotions. Um, and that's totally normal f- to have the human experience. Now, if those emotions become problematic, including happiness, if it becomes problematic and it starts impacting your quality of life, you should probably seek some help to get that back. But in the meantime, judging yourself for Judging yourself for feeling not happy has the potential to become me searching for who's playing the music loud, as you know what I'm saying. Like that actually leads you down the path of feeling worse and just accepting, like, oh, yeah, why on a Tuesday afternoon do I feel sad? I don't have to look for the meaning for that. I just have a sad emotion. I'm human. Yeah. And just like roll with it. Right. Write a love song. Or a breakup song. Or yeah. <laughs> or go for a walk, right? Or continue or yeah. go back to work or continue doing whatever you had planned that day and don't allow your emotions to dictate your behavior. Yeah, I like that. Um the other day like as we're talking about like the ebbs and flows of human life and like about how like you know how you're just saying like uh some people may not have as many stress responses, like they might not have as much psychological impact, but they have more physiological right. impact. I was thinking that like, like the other day I went on a walk with my friend Trey. I shout out Trey twice on this podcast already, or not a walk. It was a three hour hike and it was a hundred degrees wow. in Orange County. Yeah. And I only brought one bottle of water and I microdosed that day. Oh. So it's like a four day, it's like a, every four days I, I do like a little bit. And I fucking was like, I was like tripping. I was like, damn, I might fucking die on this hike. You know what I mean? <laughs> I was like, but as I like walked and kind of like was paying attention to my own pace and stuff, I like had this like revelation that I was like, yo, I think anxiety fucking saved my life. Mm. Like, I think that in terms of what I do, like it made me feel more and like kind of understand that like life is fucking short and that, and that if I keep like living just to like keep, living like living to exist rather than living to live Mm -hmm. and like keep like living according to the society and the standards that I was like given rather than what I just internally feel is right. Then am I really living, you know? Yeah. And, and that's kind of been like my, that's why I'm doing this and having this conversation with you, Kevin. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. I mean, you know, there's so many awesome ways to think about it and, and that is one of them, you know, John Kabat-Zinn, who kind of westernized, you know, the practice of, of mindfulness, you know, says, what's his name? John Kabat-Zinn. Uh, John Cabot. Cabot, K-A-B-A-T, Zinn. Z- Zinn, like Z-E-N. Yeah. So he, he's who the, the word Zen is like named after? I don't know. You fact check that name. I might be spelling it wrong. It might be John Cabot Zen or, or I don't think that that's who it's after. He's way more, he's way too uh, uh, recent in history to be, okay, gotcha. to be responsible for that. Um, but, you know, he has a quote that, that I'll probably mess up here, but it's something along the lines of, right, like just paying attention to your breath and like as long as you're breathing. You know, there's more going right in your body than wrong. And it's like, yeah, that's right. You know, Um, and it's kind of like just acknowledging and expressing gratitude regularly. And it reminded me of that when you said, you know, anxiety helped me come to this kind of idea that it saved me. Um, And I don't know if I would be as effective as a therapist if I hadn't lived my own experience with anxiety. You know, not that therapy is ever about me, but 
but it really helps me understand that just like how the, the pathology of anxiety functions and then the impact that it has on an individual. And that, I think that would be hard to do if I hadn't just lived it myself. And if I don't live it all the time, if I don't live it every day and I don't try and live in a world based on my values where I'm trying to keep my anxiety, uh, you know, keep the relationship with my anxiety in a place that, that feels reasonable versus letting it, you know, punk me all the time. Yeah. I feel that it's kind of like, it's kind of like, uh, you played soccer, you said, right. It's kind of like, can you really be a soccer coach without playing soccer ever? Right. Right. I know it's up for debate. (laughs) It's up for debate in the field. Right. Because when you ever see a teenager as a clinician, you know, teenagers are great at saying, you don't know me. Right. As your, did your dad beat your mom? No. Is your parents an alcoholic? No. You know, uh, did, did, you know, were you sex? No. You know, so you don't have to live like to be an effective therapist. You certainly don't have to have lived experience of all the psychological distress things in the world and gone through everything. Um, but, and, and I have a lot of, I know a lot of very amazing clinicians that work for me that I don't know their history, their anxiety history, and they're really, really effective. I know for yeah. me that when I talk about this stuff, Um, and I describe it to people, I know for me, my experience has been really, really helpful. Um, and, and that's cool, you know, and the experiences I've lived with in life have helped get me where I am today. And that's all I got is those experiences, you know? Yeah, I got you. And that's kind of our goal, right? Like, I feel like our goal isn't to let people know like, Hey, we've experienced exactly what you have or, or everyone that has anxiety ha- like feels this way. It's not to generalize, but rather say like, however you're feeling, it's completely chill and it's completely okay. And like, maybe I don't feel this way, and maybe like five of your closest friends don't feel this way. But I guarantee you, someone out there has like a similar experience. Right. Yes, and I would just say for people to think about their anxiety and to think about their things they're doing with the intention of helping them feel less anxiety and really question whether that's effective. So think about the function of what you're doing. And I just, this is such an important piece that I want to circle back to it. So if somebody gets anything from this, it's this idea that if you're right now, you know, listening to this, when someone listens to this podcast and they're saying, huh, I never thought of my anxiety this way. And what I have been taught is to actually do all these really intricate safety things to keep me from feeling distressed. So, you know, when I go to the store, I make sure I have my bottle of water and my Xanax and my phone and, and being able to acknowledge like, are those things helpful? Well, they're helpful in the moment. If you get to the store, cool. And you get your groceries. Awesome. But they're not helpful is the next day you need to go to the store again and you still have the same fear. And what you're doing is you're actually feeding that bully. You're feeding that monster. You're not overcoming it. And so, Um, really think about the relationship and the function of the relationship to the behaviors that you engage in and ask yourself, are they working? And if they're not, you got to get rid of them. You've got to reflect on your week and decide what's working and what's not and do something else. Gotcha. Like what's like, what's helping me go to the grocery store without anyone or anything like where I can just go without like having to feel like I, I have to like have a crutch with me. Is that what you're kind of saying? Yeah. And, and the only way to do that is you have to experience it, right? Like um, by avoid, by, by adding in these safety behaviors, I call them, right? You disallow yourself to know that you are ever okay. Because what they do is they rob people of confidence. So if you go to the store and you have no anxiety symptoms, you don't panic and you get home and your partner, boyfriend, friend, mother, lover, whoever says to you, you did it. Your anxiety is going to go, no, you didn't. You had to take all that shit with you. Next time it might hit you, right? And what we want people, what we want the lesson to be is if I go to the store, I may or may not panic. If I panic, I can totally tolerate it because it always ends. And if I don't panic, I know that I'm creating now new associations with my brain where I won't have to panic in the future. And that's how people get better. That's sick. I like the idea. It's very effective. Cool. All right, then, Kev. Um, it's been it's been amazing. I have uh, here probably like enough information and resources for someone to at least like start their journey with anxiety. You know, yeah. um, I have a lot more I would like to talk to you about. 
but we will have more episodes, I hope. I hope so. It's fun. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, well, thank you guys. This was episode five of Unguarded Conversations with Kevin Ashworth. Um, Kevin, anything else you'd like to say? No, I appreciate it. Uh, I just encourage everybody to kind of lean into their stuff. It's the way we get through it. Let's get it. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye.